We've been talking about what happened between the cross and the throne, just dealing with some things in Jesus' life as he's going through this last week of his life, through the cross. Even beyond that, we're going to eventually get to the ascension. Um, But I wanted to talk just a little bit tonight on that time period that doesn't get dealt with much. And it's what was going on when he was spending time in the grave, those three days and three nights that he was in the grave. What? What was going on? Why was that significant? Uh, Was it just sort of a divine timeout? And, uh, you know, everybody was just catching their breath after the whirlwind Passion Week? Or what exactly was going on? Truth of the matter is, there was a lot that was going on. And as we will see eventually, very obviously in the book of Acts, what we call the ascension, when he is taken up into clouds and he's received to his place of glory at the right hand of God the Father. This is actually what you might rightly call the descension. Because the scripture tells us some things about after the cross that took place that were essential that uh, you and I need to know. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase. (laughs) We've used it in a flippant way, uh, but it is a very applicable way tonight. Sometimes we'll look at our week and we'll look at what we faced and we'll say this phrase, I've been to hell and back. <laughs> now, now, now maybe, maybe you would never say that or admit to saying it, but I suspect a lot of folks have thought that. I've been to hell and back. Well, I'm here to tell you that's exactly what happened to Jesus. He went to hell and back. And uh, I want to read you some passages that I think are fascinating. So there's three of them. I think they're all listed on your notes. Let's take the time to hunt them down. Acts chapter 2.25. Acts 2.25. We read these words. It's in the middle of Peter's sermon. It says, For David says concerning him, meaning Jesus, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. Then in verse 27, I just want to make mention, it says, For you will not leave my soul in Hades. You may want to underline Hades. If you have an old King James Version, it may literally say hell there in the old King James Version. Um, The actual Greek word is Hades, and we won't talk about the translation issues, but at times it is translated hell. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. So we begin to see a concept in Peter's sermon there at Pentecost of Hades. Now turn to Ephesians, Ephesians 4. I'm going to read a passage there, and then I'm going to jump over to 1 Peter, and then we'll be done. And then I want to make some comments. Ephesians 4, verse 9. Ephesians 4, 9. We read this. Now this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Paul's speaking of Jesus again. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So again, we see that there was some dissension that took place in the life of Jesus. And then finally, in 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter 3.18... We read these words. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Then verse 19, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits 
in prison. He preached to the spirits in prison. So we want to talk just for a moment or two about what happened those three days and three nights while Jesus was in the grave. For those of you that may not know, I want to take just a moment and clear up a concept that might be confusing. In Old Testament times, or if you were an Old Testament saint, and in some ways it works similarly for those of us under a new covenant, but I've oftentimes been asked, what happened when people died under an old covenant? What took place when someone before the cross event actually happened? Uh, what happened to them when they died? Well, there's a Hebrew word uh, that's called sheol. And the reason I put this little one up here is I didn't want to take out that 20-foot whiteboard I have. That, would, that seemed a little overwhelming. The Hebrew word sheol and the Greek word is Hades. Sheol and Hades. And when you go through the Bible, you'll find that these are translated different ways. And again, translation things are always interesting to talk about. But a lot of times in the Old Testament, Sheol will be translated grave. Sometimes it will also be translated hell. Hades, in the modern version, will oftentimes just be referenced as Hades. The old King James Version, though, translates it as hell. The difficulty sometimes with those translations and then when you begin to read it is you don't know if what, what hell may be talked about. I mean, there are three words uh, in the Bible concerning hell. There's Hades, there's Gehenna, which is the final lake of fire, and then there's Tartarus, which is where uh, Peter tells us that the spirits that were particularly despicable and uh, overwhelming were locked into that pit in order that they could not be released into the earth. And so, and so all of these at times have been translated hell, and so there's always kind of a misconception. Then, of course, if we talk about hell, we have sort of these pictures of, you know, sort of the imagery of what Dante wrote with his book, The Inferno. And, and I just want to clear a couple of things up, because to understand what happened in those three days and three nights, you have to understand a little bit of what this place called Hades is all about. And for lack of a better term... If I just drew a big circle, and we just called that a holding tank. Now, for those of you that have a Catholic background, this is not purgatory, all right? I mean, they, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they derived it from there. I'm not a Catholic, so I don't know how they got some of these things. But when an Old Testament saint or when an Old Testament person, an Old Covenant person died and went into the grave, he went to a place that was called Sheol. Sheol is what the Greeks would later label as Hades. It's a holding tank of sorts. And in this holding tank, this is before now, Christ and the cross, this is old covenant times, this is pre-cross, there were two sides to this holding tank. There was a side that we would come to know as paradise, and there would be a side that we would come to know as torment. If you say, where did you get all of that? I get all of that from Luke 16, beginning with verse 23, when Jesus tells the story about the rich man and Lazarus. A lot of people want to make that into a parable, but he never says it's a parable. As a matter of fact, I honestly believe it's a picture. He tells us a picture of the rich man and Lazarus and some things that are going on in this holding tank called Hades. Now, the whole thing, the whole tank is called Hades. So in Hades, this is pre-cross, there are two sides. There's a paradise side and there's a torment side. And in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, you see that. It says that, that a rich man died and he was taken to torment. And this beggar named Lazarus died and 
he was taken to Abraham's bosom, which was in paradise. Also, when Jesus died on the cross and the, the thief made the confession on the cross, you remember the words of our Lord when he looked at him and said, Truly, I tell you, this day you shall be with me where? In paradise. In paradise. So this is indeed where he was going and where he spent his time in those three days and those three nights. There was some gulf that was affixed in between these two areas. It could not be crossed. And uh, this is a very and continues to be a real place. It has changed somewhat now, uh, but you need to know originally what it was all about. Now, everyone under an old covenant and up to the time of Jesus went to this place and they were immediately placed into one of these two compartments. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 2, uh, we find there, if you want to run it down, Hebrews 2, beginning with verses 14 and 15, uh, it says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now, that's just a picture. I believe that's some imagery that's taking place with regards to this particular holding place. Now, why were they being held in there? Why was all this taking place? You remember all through Old Covenant times, they were going through the sacrificial system. They were sacrificing with the blood of bulls and goats and animals. And all of this they were doing. You know, whenever they, whenever they were sacrificing animals, understand that the people might have convoluted and twisted this thing in their mind, but it was not the blood of bulls and goats that was setting them free or reconciling them to God. But they were literally entering into a faith act, believing that one day God would send a Messiah who would be the spotless lamb. And, and because of his ability to be the spotless lamb, the real deal article, uh, the genuine thing, they were, they were facing forward in these acts, believing that one day the Messiah would come in order to free them. And so it was, it was about ready to take place. And as that was happening for thousands of years, the righteous and unrighteous dead were placed in this abode called Hades. Their righteousness, of course, uh, being prescribed through the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant precepts, the Old Covenant law. Now, before I explain what took place, I want to talk just a moment and, and tell you about this. A place. Paradise apparently is a, a great place. Uh, it was a place where there was rest, there was peace, uh, a place that obviously would bring some sense of, 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 of fulfillment, compassion, uh, all the things, love, rest, all those things. But the other side, this torment side, was a place that was horrific. And it would be the place that we would commonly know to be as hell. Now, Hollywood has depicted this at so many levels and, and has twisted it in all of our minds to such a degree that it would take probably a whole series on hell in order to untangle that. Now, I'll just be honest with you. Hell doesn't market real well. I, I mean, you, you know, you put up a sign and say, come learn about hell. They aren't going to be tripping over each other to come learn about it. But how many of you know that, that we better understand what this is about? Because these places are incredibly important and incredibly real. First thing I want to say to you that hell was never created for people. It really wasn't. Um, you know, there's kind of a new trendy thing. You know, universalism has kind of made its trendy comeback. You've heard me mention this before. And I was even reading today on a blog thread 
Uh, it started on a Facebook thread and then it leapt over to a blog thread. And how the question comes up and says, how can, how can God, who created man to love him, all of a sudden, sudden send him away? How can, how can a God that loves send people to a hell for all of eternity? Well, I, I need to stop right there and call a timeout. If you ever read that on a blog thread or if you ever get in a conversation like that, just stop the conversation right there and say this. God does not send anybody to hell. Now, now I know you know where I'm going with this. Now, that can sound universalistic if you don't know where I'm going with this. God doesn't send anybody to hell. God's doing everything he can to provide a way, to provide the answer, to provide the solution. If, if, if somebody goes to hell, they go to hell because they chose to do that. Now, now, there may be challenges in our understanding and gaps in our understanding as to what God does with those who may never have heard. We call that the plight of the heathen. We don't know exactly, you know, how all that works. I believe I could show you some things out of Romans as to how God deals with all of those things. But let's just say for right now, and let's just keep it simple for the moment, the, the concept that God isn't sending people to hell. That's, that's not what God does. God is doing everything he can to provide an answer so that no one has to go to hell. If you end up in hell, in fact, I'll just say this, that if all your life, this is what I believe, hell, hell will have, I believe, physical torment and all sorts of things associated with it. It's interesting how Jesus said that in hell there would be darkness, and yet at the same time there would be fire. Isn't that, isn't that an enigma, how the two can exist? But yet that will be so. I do believe this, that if you go to hell, it's because literally that's what you desired and that's what you wanted. Now, you may not want it once you're there. How many of you know there have been a lot of things in your life that you wanted, and once you got it, you weren't sure you really wanted it all that bad? But boy, you wanted it at the time. See, for most people, all their life, they're doing everything they can to keep themselves at arm's length from the Lord. They, they don't want anything to do with God. They want to do things their way. They see it their way. They want it their way. They're Burger King people. They want it the way they want it, and that's just it. And all their life, they're the center of their own universe. They're selfish. They're self-consumed. And all God does is God just simply says, okay, then have eternity with you. That, that's hell. Imagine all eternity with just you. You got what you wanted. You wanted to be the center of your own universe. Well, those are some thoughts, initial thoughts on hell. Now, you know, John 8, 44, and again, I'm just sort of picking at this for a moment uh, because, like I said, it's just been trendy lately to think that anybody can stamp your ticket and you get to heaven. In John 8, 44, uh, Jesus is looking at, at the Jews. He's looking at covenant people right now, those that have been in covenant, or at least they understood to be in covenant because of their racial makeup. But he looks at them, John 8, 44, and he says, You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. So Jesus looks at religious people and says to them, Your father is the devil, and you have the nature of your father, who is the devil, in you. Now, that's why religion won't save you. See, religion, you know, you can, you, can, you can hook your wagon up to some religion, even Christianity, but that's not, what, that's not what stamps your ticket into heaven. 
All right. He says, you have your father. Now, listen, this is the covenant people. They're supposedly the seed of Abraham. But yet Jesus looks at him and says, your father, the devil. Now, these are important concepts because you are not a son or a daughter of God until you tie yourself into Jesus. Until you tie yourself into Jesus, you are a son or a daughter of the devil. Now, that's why I always smile and chuckle, and, and I've not been called to rearrange everybody's vocabulary. But I'm always amazed when everybody stands up or people stand up, government pe leaders stand up or whoever it may be stand up, Hollywood celebrities stand up, and they say, we're all God's children. You hadn't read your Bible. Well, no, we're not. Are you following me? You're, you're not a child of God until you've knit yourself in to Jesus Christ. If you've not knit yourself into Jesus Christ, then the scripture tells us that our father is the devil. All of us are born with that nature. I'm not, see, this is the thing. I'm not being intolerant of anybody. I was in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. We were born with our nature already bent towards selfishness and self-centeredness. And that stems from the enemy. And so we need something to happen in our life to break us out of sin, to bring forgiveness and cleansing into our life. And of course, that was the nature and the purpose of the cross. Um, people often ask me, do you think the fire and the darkness is real? Yes, I think it's real. And just as I can't paint heaven beautiful enough, I can't paint hell bad enough. Um, the reason for all the smoke, fire, darkness, screaming, torment is because your whole life you wanted to empower your senses. You think about this as I've taught it. I've taught to you that the carnal nature is really when our senses are empowered to exercise dominion over our life. That's what carnality means. Carnality is the opposite of being led by the Spirit. If I'm being led by the Spirit, then that means that God in the inner man is directing my steps. He's leading my steps, producing you know, joy, peace, goodness, righteousness, all the fruit of the Spirit. The opposite of that is carnality. What does that mean? It means that I'm being led by my senses. I'm led by what my eyes see. I'm led by my smell, my touch, you know, my, uh, my, my hearing, my seeing. And so the reason, I, I, I'm just telling you things that as I've kind of pondered on it, why is, there, why is there darkness and fire and smoke and all of these screams and all the things you hear about hell, why is that? It's because you're going to have a sensory experience for all eternity because you wanted your senses to be peaked your whole life. You didn't want to live by the Spirit. Didn't even want to give God a chance in that. Now, I understand you're the Wednesday night crew. It's almost like I'm in a camp meeting here, isn't it? I understand you're the Wednesday night crew. You wouldn't be here unless you love the Lord. So isn't it good news that I'm just talking about this and it's probably not a reality for anyone's future here. We're going to believe that to be true. But for those that want to live by the flesh, you wanted your senses peaked continually. Well, God will give you a sensory experience. The likes of which you've never, never seen before. But here's the good news. The good news is Jesus came in order that we did not have to go there. It's, it's like if a guy, I think it was Tyler was telling me this story. It was down in Florida. A bridge went out down in Florida. I guess it was one of those that went over an intercoastal waterway. And there were cars there were cars going over the bridge, just going over this bridge, dropping over into the water, just one after another. And there was a guy who stopped his car soon enough 
was able to get out and started waving his arms, trying to stop people from driving off the edge of that bridge. Now, I want to ask you a question. Is, is it the guy's fault who's waving his arms that people are driving off the bridge? Is, he, is the guy on the side of the road waving his arms, sending those people into the ocean? Is that his fault? No. Well, understand right now, preachers have done this. Prophets have done this for years. God has done that in your life in certain ways for years, trying to stop you and me from driving our life off the end of bridges, and then we blame him thinking somehow he sent us there. He didn't send anybody there. He's trying to keep people from being there. He created the answer. And so here we are back under an old covenant, and and we have this holding tank called Hades. There are righteous dead. There are unrighteous dead. Jesus becomes the fulfillment of all the prophecy that said he would be the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He was the one that begins to put into motion all the issues of redemption and atonement. Remember what the scripture said. We quote the second Corinthians five, where it says that he became sin in order that what we might become. So there's a substitution that takes place. He takes on, not just takes it on. He becomes sin. Well, if he became sin, think this through. What what must God do with sin? Well, I I know my board's going to get real messy here. Cross, he becomes sin, takes upon the sins of the world, dies. Where does someone that dies in sin, where do they go? Into Hades. He goes into Hades. He had to face everything you and I would possibly ever face. And this three-day trip was essential in order for us to receive what we were purposed to receive as the sons and daughters of God. So let me talk about what happened and why during those three days in Hades, and you can begin to write this down, all right? I think, I don't have one of those pages in front of me, but I think we're there. Are we at the place where you fill in the blank and it says sin had to be judged and a ransom had to be paid? Yeah. Sin had to be judged. Oh, I'm already down to letter C. Sin had to be judged and a ransom paid. Sin had to be judged and a ransom paid. Romans 6.23 says that sin has a debt attached to it. That it must be paid and it's paid by death. The wages of sin is what? Death. So there's a debt associated with sin. In order to ransom you, he had to endure the judgment of sin. Just as sin is real, he took upon sin in order that we could take righteousness. Sin is real, and if you refuse to let him deal with it, listen, he took upon your sin, this is good news, he took upon your sin and went to Hades so that you wouldn't have to go to this place because sin will be dealt with. Are you following me? Holy God... Righteous in all his ways, not only, not only does he not have to, he, does, he doesn't want to or doesn't have to. He's God, and, and he will not stand in the presence of sin. That is why atonement had to take place. So sin has to be dealt with. Sin has to be judged. And he endures the judgment of sin. And uh, there's no true substitution unless he goes and satisfies and pays the penalty of sin. So... That's one of the reasons he descended 
into the lower parts. Number two, while he was there, there were interesting things that began to take place. He demonstrated, Jesus demonstrated dominion over Satan and his demons. Now picture this. Picture in this time period, don't you know, and you've heard this taught and preached and exhorted before, don't you know that demons were jumping up and down and all of hell was laughing and cackling and mocking and thinking that, that they had won. And all of a sudden, the scripture says, he shakes all of that off. And in Colossians 2.15, I don't know if I wrote it there, but you need to write it down. Colossians 2.15, it literally says, having put off from himself... He disarmed principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. In Luke's Gospel 11, beginning with verse 21, it says that Jesus literally went to the strong man's house and plundered him. So Jesus goes into Hades, into the strong man's house, and plunders him. What does it mean to plunder him? It means that he took back everything that was his. So literally what happens is, is, is that when he's resurrected from the dead, literally paradise is emptied. In fact, the Bible tells us that, that there were people during that time period when he was raised from the dead, there were others that were raised from the dead as well, which I believe were first fruits or, or demonstrations of resurrection power that had taken place. And that's why the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. He met Satan on his own turf and not only won, but he emptied out the holding tank of the righteous dead that had believed in him all under an old covenant. Yes, he went in and preached. He preached. What did he preach? He preached the gospel. He preached atonement. He preached the reason. He was it. He could he could look at all those old covenant saints and begin to speak out of those old covenant scriptures and they would literally see with their eyes. The fulfillment of that which they had sacrificed the blood of bulls and goats for millennia. They'd sacrificed these things. They saw the fulfillment of it. And he emptied out paradise. Then number three, it says, Jesus recovered everything that had been stolen from Adam and the seed of Adam. In Revelation 118. Revelation 118. It says, I am he, the Lord speaking, who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And listen to what he says. And I have the keys of what? Hades and death. Death and hell. He has the keys. Jesus took the keys of death and hell. Adam, the first Adam, was designed to live forever. He was designed, before sin entered into the equation, human beings were designed to live forever uninterrupted with God forever. Death never entered into the equation until rebellion took place and they partook of the fruit. And then death entered into the equation. But now the second Adam goes back on the enemy's turf. He takes the keys and literally, I understand you and I are in this human body and this human body is only designed you know, to live God willing. You know, I've been confessing. I'm living into my mid-90s. I'm preaching the gospel in my mid-90s. I've just made that confession. If you're here, hopefully we'll be somewhere else than here. But, but if we're here, sweet Jesus, help us. I, I'm, I'm just confessing it. How, how am I going to go? I'm not, I've decided because I'm making my confession and I believe Jesus can give me strength. 
I'm not even hedging on my confession. You ain't going to send me to a nursing home. You're not going to find me on some porta potty dead somewhere. I'm going to, I'm going to be in the middle of my last sermon, in the middle of the last invitation with my last breath, giving an altar call and God will take me right then. That's my confession. Amen. You can die on your porta potty somewhere. I'm not doing it. I had a point in there before I talked about porta potties. This human body was meant uh, to live forever. Sin entered into the equation. Now it doesn't. But here's the good news. The good news is, is that this is not who I really am. I am a spirit. I have a soul. And I am designed now because of what has taken place to live forever. I mean, this may run out of steam, but I will live forever. Jesus has the keys to that now. He has the keys to death, the keys to Hades. And, and the cool thing is now he wants to hand us the keys. Now, we've not got to the resurrection yet. And uh, we're, going to, we're, we're going to eventually get there uh, to the resurrection. But the important part is to understand that when, that when he went down into these lower parts, um, he, he, was, he was finishing, he was giving the final blow, the final... Well, we, we haven't killed the enemy, but, but it, was, it was ostensibly the death blow to the enemy. We've given the enemy far too much credit and too much ability in our life. Do you, under, do you understand that Jesus ripped the keys? Keys represent authority. And um, those keys are in the hands of the Lord. And, you know, we started this message out saying, maybe some of you have said even this week, you know, I've been to hell and back. I don't know about you. I've had weeks like that. I've been to hell and back. You are depleted, you are frustrated, you feel like you've been beaten up, you feel like everything's been thrown against you, you feel like you're at the point of exhaustion, you feel like there's no way to go forward, you've lost your hope, you've lost a sense of direction. This is what's cool. Jesus has lived that week for you. That's what that means. He's lived that week for you. He substituted, he lived the week for you in order that you could live victory. He lived through hell that you could live through victory. That's what substitution means. That's why he said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's because he switched with you. He switched with you the burden. You don't have to carry the burden of sin, but you can lose the burden of sin in order to get his burden, which is easy and light. And the Holy Spirit is wanting us to get a revelation of what really is available in him. And the greatest sign, I believe, of this reality is, is salvation. Because when we're saved, there's true transformation that takes place. See, this is my greatest... I, I believe I was called and put on the earth for, if no other purpose, this one purpose. And that is to let, let his church know that this isn't just theory. That you weren't just theoretically declared righteous and now go live your life in the power of your flesh. But that this was reality. And that if we'll step into that reality and let that really substitute, then we can begin. We don't, we don't live theoretically and, and we're all saying amen when secretly we know we can't really live this. But now we can say amen because truly the victory has been birthed in us through him. So that we can really face whatever the enemy throws at us and we can prevail. I understand there are tough weeks. I understand 
there are real challenges. I understand that maybe some of you in this very room right now are facing an onslaught of the enemy. If you're in a peaceful season, praise God, ride that wave as long as you can ride it. Because there's a time for everything. But if you find yourself in a difficult season, then this is all I would simply say to you. Why not tonight before you leave? Say, Lord, one more time. I'm casting, that's what the scripture says, I cast my cares upon you. I, I cast my week upon you. I cast, hey, for some, you probably need to go back and say, Lord, I've sinned. I cast my sin upon you. I can't hide it. I can't atone for it. The only thing I can do is cast it upon you. And what he does is then he casts his victory upon us and his righteousness and his ability. I don't know about you, Bill. That's a pretty good deal, isn't it? And we're not even to the resurrection yet. If you understand, we, the resurrection is like the great big exclamation point on the whole deal. So let's, let's do this. Stand up with me real quick. I'm just going to stop there real quick.